welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. Coral reefs are a huge, huge role player in kind of a global ecosystem, and particularly in our oceans. Our planet's 70% water, and while coral reefs only take up a small fraction of that space, they actually provide a home um, or a nursery, so to speak, for about a quarter of all life in our oceans. We're going to focus on corals, but instead of focusing on their loss and destruction, we thought we'd go on a world tour to find out what's being done to try and save them. So, ironically, the first place we headed to was Colorado, nowhere near the sea, but it is where this guy, Zach Rago, lives. When we talk about losing coral reefs or the degradation of them, what you're really talking about is an immediate and direct impact on nearly a quarter of life in the ocean. And that will obviously have its own chain reaction all the way up the food chain, both marine and eventually to where it hits us as humans. There are more people that live on coastal regions than there are anywhere else on the planet. And when you kind of hyper-focus in on an area, someplace like Southeast Asia, for instance, you have millions and millions of people that utilize these ecosystems to put a roof over their heads to get their protein to their families. What actually are corals? Corals are these incredible organisms that could almost be considered all an animal, a plant, um, a mineral. It's essentially an animal that is lucky enough to have a plant inside of its tissue that produces most of its energy. Um, and that energy, for the most part, goes towards building its stony skeleton underneath it. So they're constantly growing upwards and outwards, but it's really two organisms that encompass this one thing that we kind of know as coral. Originally, we simply wanted to take these quintessential beautiful ecosystems um, that coral reefs are and capture this really visual process of them turning white during a bleaching event. Just corals bleaching, that, that's all we wanted, that, that's what the goal was. And there was never a conversation about those corals ultimately dying. Obviously, with the film, we end up in a position where we're in a location that would really become the, the bullseye for coral bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef, and, and ultimately that entire ecosystem that we worked on died. These ecosystems are absolutely magic. So at this point, it made sense to leave landlocked Colorado and head for the sea. Next up, the Philippines. Despite the ongoing loss of corals and the future climate changes that suggest that we are going to lose even more coral reefs in coming decades, 
I think it's really important for us to be thinking carefully about how we could meaningfully try and influence the outcomes and not just give up and suggest that coral reefs are lost so we need to go and find another cause in terms of trying to protect biodiversity on the planet. The scientist's name is Peter Harrison. I've been working on coral reef systems for more than 35 years. And unfortunately, during my lifetime, I've witnessed the destruction of many reef systems around the world. In fact, I don't know of any reef on the planet at the moment that's in better condition than when I first saw them those many decades ago. Peter hasn't given up, though, and he's hatched a coral reef restoration plan using coral larvae. Coral larvae are tiny, microscopic-looking little creatures. They're very simple in their structure. They are usually somewhere between half a millimetre and occasionally up to a couple of millimetres long. They're able to contract and move around. They're planktonic because they're tiny little hair-like cilia on the outside of the coral larva doesn't allow them to swim against ocean currents. So wherever they get caught up in an ocean current, they get dragged along by that current until the current might meet another reef or somewhere that it's suitable to settle. And at that stage, the coral larvae can start to settle down through the water column and find a suitable place to settle on the reef system. So Peter wants to know how we can use these tiny little larvae to restore coral reefs. The way in which we go about the larval restoration is to grow millions of larvae up either on the reef system or in culture tanks in laboratories. And then when the larvae are fully ready to settle at about six or seven days of age after spawning, and they're desperate to settle on the reef, it's at that stage that we then take them back into the reef system. And what we need to do is enclose them in the reef itself because otherwise the currents would simply take all of these larvae away and drift them away from the area that we're trying to work on to understand how effective this process can be. So we temporarily enclose parts of the reef in different types of mesh systems. So we use very fine plankton mesh, but during the first experiments in the Philippines, we also used wedding veil material, just simple organza cloth. And that was fine enough to keep the larvae on the reef system during the settlement period and enable a very low cost solution and a very practical approach to developing this larval restoration technique. Other coral restoration techniques, such as coral gardening, require you to break off a piece of coral, take it into a nursery, grow it up for six months before bringing it back to the ocean. But it is very labor intensive, it's quite expensive, and therefore it's very hard to do it at large scales. And if we're going to be serious about trying to tackle the problem of the global collapse of coral populations and the crisis that has occurred on many reef systems around the world, which have simply run out of enough corals to be effective as coral reefs. We need to think of a different way of doing this. And so that's where the larval restoration approach comes in. They've already tried and tested this in the Philippines. We've been able to show for the first time that it is possible to restore coral populations to breeding size adults in just three years. 
And what's remarkable about that is that we've been able to do it on highly degraded reef systems. Some of them die, but some of them settle. And then of those that settle, some of those survive. And what's really exciting is that once they get to visible size at about nine months, they continue to live really well. So there's been no mortality of these juvenile corals on these reef systems from nine months, and they're now grown to very large size and are now five years old. The largest of these is now about half a metre in diameter. So we've been able to very rapidly re-establish breeding populations of corals on these degraded reef systems. So this sounds great, but the extreme climate conditions in the coming decades are looking to only get worse. So a reef may be restored perhaps for a year or two, only just to be hit by another severe bleaching episode. The work that I'm doing on larval restoration is trying to increase the numbers of corals, but not only the numbers of corals, but their genetic diversity by deliberately crossbreeding and enhancing genetic diversity. We're on our way to meet the scientist. Madeleine van Oppen. She's trying to find a solution to make corals more resilient to climate change. Next, we're heading to Australia, the Great Barrier Reef. The rate of climate change is faster than corals can adapt or acclimatise naturally. Corals would acclimatise naturally through the process of evolution, and Madeleine and her research group is assisting this evolutionary process. I define assisted evolution as the acceleration of naturally occurring evolutionary processes to enhance certain traits. Traits like being able to withstand more acidic oceans or high temperatures. One of the ways this can happen is by making a hybrid. You basically combine two divergent genomes together in the one organism. So you create, create new genetic diversity and new gene combinations. And so we expect that maybe not all hybrids, but at least some of them have the right gene combinations to actually cope better with uh, climate warming and acidification. This is like taking a tomato from Italy and breeding it with a different tomato from South America to improve the food quality or yield. So it's nothing necessarily new. In the Caribbean, these uh, acropora corals are also important, but there are only two species and a hybrid. So those species cross-fertilize to form a hybrid. Now that hybrid used to be fairly rare. But in recent years, it actually has become more common, more abundant, and it's now seen in, uh, in places where it normally wasn't seen, where only the parental species occurred. That research group that investigated this found that in some cases, this hybrid species is doing better than its parental species, and that they think it is because the hybrid species has developed some kind of advantage which has enabled it to succeed in the new harsh environmental conditions in which it lives. So that made me think that, you know, knowing that um, these corals, that some corals are able to hybridize, it just doesn't happen very often um, in nature, we can maybe increase that frequency in the lab and we can then test whether those hybrids have increased climate resilience. But how do corals naturally reproduce? coral colony consists of millions of little uh, coral polyps. They're basically tiny anemones uh, that all are all connected and grow into the coral skeleton. And each of these um, polyps produces sperm and egg. And when it's ready to, um, to spawn, it bundles the sperm and eggs 
together in, in a little bundle. Um, it's like a, a ball. And then it sort of pushes it through its mouth and releases it into the water column. And it's, um, it then sort of floats to the surface of, of the, the container or the, or the sea in, in nature, of course. These bundles break apart and the sperm and eggs from the different colonies are able to mix and fertilize with one another. So this is a bit of a problem as you want to be able to control fertilization. So Madeleine and her research group bring the colonies into the, the lab uh, before they spawn. And when we see signs of spawning, we place each colony in a different container. Once they release the sperm and egg bundles, we collect them uh, from the surface of the, of the container, just with a beaker, really simple. And we, we pour that sort of the bundles onto a, a, a mesh. And we, we put that in, a, in another container with seawater and we basically then wash those bundles so they break apart. Sperm goes through the mesh and we collect it in the container and the eggs stay on top of the mesh and we can, so in this way, separate sperm and eggs. We combine sperm and eggs. From different colonies and then they wait two hours for the first cell division. And when this happens... We sort of know that fertilization has taken place. The embryos that form are then gently cleaned. And then we place them in other sort of rearing tanks and so they, then they develop over the course of about four or five days into mature coral larvae. And these larvae could be used in Peter Harrison's larvae restoration method so that even if the climate did get worse, they would still survive. Last up, Discovery Bay, Jamaica. The question is, how do you uh, limit uh, that temperature rise? And one of those ways is geoengineering. Humans have been geoengineering the planet since they evolved all those many, many hundreds of thousands of years ago actually putting a spade or a stick of wood into the earth and uh, using it to, to grow plants as a form of geoengineering. The voice you just heard was Professor James Crabb, and his version of geoengineering is called solar radiation management. And the basic idea here is to limit the heating effect on the planet due to the sun. You either have a balloon or have a plane that goes up into the stratosphere and releases uh, small sulfur dioxide particles uh, that act as reflectance uh, against the sun's radiation. So they limit the, the warming effect on the planet. And what did they find? First of all, if you do inject the sulfur dioxide particles, you do see significant decrease in surface temperature rise. We also showed that there was no change in coral growth. That's very important. There's no point in, in doing these things if, if the coral then is not a able to grow. But according to Professor Crabb, the likelihood of this being implemented is low, as these sulfur dioxide particles can move freely in the air, across borders, and potentially cause problems, so there would be winners and losers. Zach Rago on the phenomenon of fluorescing corals that he saw at Lizard Island off the northeast coast of Queensland, Australia. They're basically taking their reserve energy source and they're saying, you know, I'm going to 
put all of my eggs into this basket and produce a fluorescent protein that can protect me for the time being. It just happens to be that that protein is incredibly, incredibly beautiful to the human eye. It really is something that you have to almost see to believe. I don't think that hearing me try and describe those colors or what it looks like does any good because I can't do it justice. Quite frankly, I don't think that even the footage in the film can really give it that whole justice that it deserves because it's something really otherworldly. Because it is really this, you know, kind of gorgeous phase of their dying process which is really hard to accept when, when it's something so beautiful. It's hard to study too. We don't know a whole lot about it because you only have that short, brief window of time to, to really be able to delve into that phenomenon and it doesn't happen every year or even every five years. These are some final comments that reflect their importance to us, a positive attitude towards their conservation, and celebrates their wonder and beauty. It's terrible that we're losing coral reefs at such an enormously fast rate, and it's sort of almost a little bit of, of I feel, a duty as a, as a scientist to try and contribute to the conservation of the biodiversity on, on our planet. So focusing on some key threats, thinking about how we can adapt these issues into the future is what gives me some hope that we might be able to influence the outcome and still retain coral reefs for future generations. And so my last thing that I'll leave you with is just, if you have an opportunity, I, I implore you to spend, a, spend even a moment underwater because it'll, it'll change you for the rest of your life. There's no question about it. It's almost impossible not to find that love and appreciation for what's down there. <laughs>